Galatians 5, 19-21 Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. For those of you who were with us last week, we spoke much about the first three ways in which we battle the flesh. And this week we continue on the rest of this battle. I often think that when most of us think about battling and the Christian life and fighting, we tend to think of the fight as outside of us. It's somewhere out there. It's our culture. It's our society. It's loved ones. It's our coworkers. Our, you know, it's, it's something apart from us. But this passage of scripture makes it so clear that our greatest battle is not outside of us, but rather it's internal. It's inside. And every aspect of what we face outside is going to be impacted by where we stand inside, in our hearts, what we believe, what we think to be true. And so until we really recognize that this battle is internal, we won't know how to fight. But fight we must, because more than your physical flesh is at stake. As Jesus says so clearly, we are not to fear that who can kill the body, but instead fear the one who can kill the soul. And so therefore, we recognize that, yes, sexual morality is a key part of fighting this battle. But this week, we'll look at two distinctive other categories upon which Paul lays out for us is this fight of the flesh. First is the fight against idolatry, the flesh of idolatry that is so prevalent in all of our hearts. And then secondly is fighting what I'm going to describe as divisive flesh, the, the heart tendency to want to divide and turn into factions so quickly. And again, this isn't just external. It's something internal within us that I think we can really clearly see, even to this day, even in this moment, is such a part of our hearts. So first, let's look at this fighting of the flesh of idolatry. Paul uses two words to describe this. The first is the word idolatry. The second word is the word sorcery. And to note, the word idolatry is very unique in Paul's writings, in the writings of all the Bible, in actuality. It's not just in Paul, but in all of Scripture. Because in Paul's day, in the Greek literature of his day, this word is not used. It's very unique to the Bible. And that makes sense because in Paul's day, to worship other gods was absolutely normative. There was nothing wrong with it. Everyone worshiped other gods. You didn't just worship one god. That was absurd. Uh, you, you worshiped as many gods as possible sort of to hedge your bets because it had a practical implication to it. If you wanted to succeed in war as a nation, there was a god of war. Maybe it was Mars. Maybe you know it was some god that helped you to win battles. And then there was also the god of agriculture, the god of 
fertility or goddess of fertility. There's the god of the family, the god of productivity, and so forth and so on. So everyone had idols. These little idols supported each sector of your life, and it helped you to actually be fruitful in your life. So it was sort of absurd for this new religion to have only one god, and to then describe the idea of having more gods as this word called idolatry. It just was unheard of. You didn't do that. It's not so distinct or unique, though, to Paul's day. It happens in our day. Roman Catholics. If you come from a Roman Catholic background, we. You might have seen this a little bit, a sense of this in the veneration of saints. So you had St. Jude. You pray to St. Jude because he was the saint of lost causes. Or St. Christopher for protection. St. Anthony for miracles. And the list is endless. But it's not just Catholics who have this perspective. May I say that we Protestants also do the same thing without recognizing it. Because really, when you rely on any person or authority or figure or perspective and place your hope and trust in it, your ultimate hope and trust in it, then we too are venerating the saints, other gods. Again, maybe it's the stock market. Maybe it's your favored politician in office. I think we saw that last year with the election. Maybe it's our children, um, medical science. There's so many ways in which we place our whole hope and trust in. Again, it's not to say that there's no value in considering other factors, but it's when we place our ultimate hope in such things that we, in essence, are no different than those people in Paul's day who are worshiping little figurines, the God of help and health, and treasure, and hope, and all these things. Anything that we ultimately believe makes us feel safer, more secure, more provided for, these are our gods. What is it in your life that you place your hope in that is your safety net, your security? Anything that you completely mesmerize yourself in by focusing on it by maybe going onto the computer, looking at your account and seeing the balance go up and up. And every once in a while, you have to check every day. Is my balance going up and up? Is, are my, is my retirement fund and the fact that I can maybe retire at 55, that it, that's my goal. And I'm going to check that every day. Whether we realize it or not, that's our hope. That's our security. That's our treasure. And that is our God. For Paul, to worship any god except the god of scripture was the most foolish approach one could take in life. And so it could be sexual fulfillment, as he just spoke of. It could be our money. Or it could be what Paul calls sorcery. Now, sorcery, you're all thinking, I'm not a sorcerer. I don't believe in sorcery. But what's interesting about this word is that it's the Greek word pharmake. And pharmake is where we get the word pharmacy. In other words, for us today, it means drugs, medicines. Now, why do different translations of the Bible translate this word that deals with drugs and medicines 
as sorcery or witchcraft because often these drugs were used in Paul's day just like our day for good purposes and for evil purposes. They're meant for health, for healing, but so often they were abused for harm and for personal personal growth and their own power and strength. And so by doing this, sometimes they created such a state of delirium that they got lost in the idolatrous rituals of magic, you might say, and it brought about a certain result. And so if you wanted to know whether you should marry a person, you go to the witch or to the shaman and you take this drug and it puts you into this delirious state. And by that, you, you sense the God who then helps you to choose whether you should marry this person or not. It's, it's this idea that our current state of mind is not sufficient enough to be wise, to be discerning. And so we need something to take or to change our state in order to feel better about ourselves to help us to be more secure, to be safer. It's uh, I mean, the list of that goes on endlessly. You know, I was reading an article about, and this is not going to be a t- topic about marijuana and can Christians smoke marijuana. So, but uh, I was reading an article about it and they describe marijuana as um, the smell of burning hospital. And you're probably thinking, what in the world is a burning hospital smell? That's marijuana. <laughs> Every time I walk by it, it's, it just has this strong, distinctive smell. And why do we take marijuana? And I'm not talking about medicinally or anything like that, because every drug has its positive and its negative. And so often it's to alter the state of mind due to different circumstances. And we have to really wrestle with the idea of who is my ultimate controller, the one I place my hope and trust in? Is it the Lord? Or is it something else? It could be marijuana, it could be alcohol. It could be coffee. It could be many things. I love coffee. I drink it all the time, twice a day. But if my hope is in coffee, and sometimes it is, sometimes it's, I gotta get it early in the morning. It's the first thing you do before prayer, before the Lord, before the word, coffee. I need it. Is Sam saying, you shouldn't, you're, if you drink coffee, then you're sinning against the Lord? No, please do not get that idea. I'm using that very, you might say, innocent idea to say that anything and everything that causes us to ultimately place our hope in that versus the Lord is something, at the very least, we should consider, is this controlling me? It could be, It could be social media, it could be Instagram, it could be something that says, I need to do this. It could be video games. Something that says, if I don't do this, I don't feel good. It helps me to feel good. The endorphins are being released and I really feel good about myself. And if you can't say, I'm gonna take a break. If that's not possible for you and you get angry because someone says, hey, you need to take a break and your first instinct is anger, then Pharmacae, you're under sorcery. That's Paul's point. You are being bewitched by something 
that God could intend for good. So Paul's point here is that there are these medicines that God intends for your good that you can use in moderation. These are good things. But when once you place your hope in it by showing that you need it above him, above anything else, then you are bewitched. You are under the sorcery spell of the world. And your flesh is completely yielding to it without battling it at all. We have to think that our greatest hope is Christ alone. And without Christ, there is no hope. So that's the flesh of idolatry. It's a sort of a brief description of it. Second is fighting divisive flesh. Paul describes this through multiple words in verses 20 and 21. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. All of these hinder the internal soul of an individual but if you notice, it's also dealing with relationship, the church. It, it actually impacts and can destroy even the church. One of the most horrific ways to die is necrotizing fasciitis. Fanci- uh, fasciitis. Necrotizing fasciitis. I don't know if any of you have heard what the, that is or what that means. It's basically this bacteria that enters your body through some sort of orifice and eats away at your flesh, flesh eating bacteria. How, don't even Google it, it's bad. I, I was so scared, I did it, I, I was looking this illustration up, but I didn't wanna look at any images because I think it's pretty horrific. Um, I mean, all of us get an insect bite or a little cut or scrape and you, 99, 90, I don't know, 90 million out of 90 million and one, like it's not gonna be an issue. You're not gonna get necrotizing fasciitis. But if you get that, and you can from just one little insect bite, um, it's not just an irritant. It can destroy you and it's horrific and it's gruesome and it does, it does terrible damage to your body. And when I see Paul in verse 15 of Galatians 5 talking about the church biting and devouring one another, I think of it as spiritual necrotizing fasciitis. It's, it's this desire of the flesh, this spiritual bacteria that is coming into your soul and it is eating away at your spiritual flesh internally, inside and then out. And it eats away at your soul. And that's what we see in verses 20 and 21 it doesn't just impact your body, it impacts the corporate body of Christ. So we're gonna look at what this bacteria looks like, this spiritual bacteria. First is the word enmity. That word literally means hatreds with a S, plural. It's actually a plural in plural form. Paul uses the same word in Romans chapter eight, verse seven. He says this, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile, same word enmity, to God. There's this, with this, it's sort of this general opposition and antagonism. Sometimes you don't even realize it's there. It just happens. It's so embedded into our soul that when we're faced with a certain circumstance, it just comes out. And think of a a bully who picks on a smaller kid. He might not do it because he wants the kid's milk money. 
He might not do it because the kid, the little kid said a, a curse word at him. This bully picks on this kid just because, just because he's there. That's sort of the idea of this enmity. It, it makes no sense. It's nonsensical, has no rhyme or reason as to why something happens. It's sheerly evil in that sense. It comes from within. And this person is just inclined to hate who the other person is. And there's this general bias, you might say a prejudice, a predisposition. And it truly reveals the vile nature of a sinful heart. If we're honest with ourselves, all of us, to some degree, has this in our souls, where we smell a person and there's an instinctive reaction to say, to make an evaluation about a person. We look at a, the, per, the color of a person's skin, maybe how they dress, and automatically, without any rhyme or reason, and no one knows, it's a secret part of your heart, there's an instinct. If, you know, if a person just dresses or thinks or speaks a certain way, has a certain accent, and suddenly we think, oh, well, if they have a, a certain type of accent, they must live in West Virginia and live in the mountains and have be uneducated. And it's just this automatic instinct of how we process a person's you know, idea of, of their disposition, their perspective, their worldview. And Paul is telling us here that this is so wicked. It's where this, the flow of classism sexism, racism, it, it always is dismissive. We automatically dismiss someone based solely on our own instinctive heart. If you drive through San Francisco or, or Oakland and you see a homeless person on the street, do you feel compassion or disdain? Especially as they get closer to you with a little sign or a big sign. Maybe when I was living in New Jersey, uh, there would always be the, we would call them the squeegee guys. You know, they would always come and they would clean your window and then and they'd do a bad job. And then they, you know, knock on your door and say, give me money. And there's such an instinct to want to dismiss that person, to be disdainful of that person. If a person of color moves in next to you, is there even the smallest part of you that says, who is she? Why is he? moving in. If someone you don't get along with suddenly wants to join your friend group, maybe it's not that you don't get along, but they don't fit the, the category, the type. Is there a feeling of, oh, if we actually bring this person in, we're not going to have as much fun together because we had this bond. And now that this person's coming in and they're a little odd or a little different than us, or their, their values are different. And if I actually try to welcome them in, now our group's dynamic is going to change. And you see, it all flows from the same heart of enmity, this distinctive heart that is just internally deciding, I'm righteous, I want things my way. And if it doesn't happen the way I want it to be, then this, I, it, I dismiss you. Paul says in Romans 8, 7, that this enmity is not just hatred against another person, it's hatred against God. If we don't see that 
the way that we are interacting with one another has a direct correlation to our view of God, then we will give in to this flesh-eating bacteria, this spiritual flesh-eating bacteria that corrodes your soul, and it does bring distance between you and the Lord. To sort of emphasize this even more, Paul uses this second word, strife. Literally, it's, it means quarrelsome. Quarrelsome is someone who is cynical and negative. Um, I hope you're not that person. But in some way, maybe we've been that to some degree in certain circumstances. Maybe you know people whose very instinct is always to be, to show you what's wrong, to be cynical, to be negative. There are times to voice opinion but there's no place at all for an opinion that is devoid of love and grace. If you show your opinion and it's only one-sided, which is, this is what's wrong, this is what you're doing wrong, and there's no sense of compassion and love and mercy, then no matter how truthful your words are, they don't really still not sink into that person's soul and it reveals your own heart. Often this person instigates negativity and criticism and that instigation of that negativity and criticism is very contagious. So you might have experienced this before. What takes one negative cynical person to come into a room and suddenly everyone else is saying, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What was once a place of hope and healing and joy becomes suddenly a place of criticism and negativity. How does that happen so easily? Paul says, it only takes this strife person, the quarrelsome person, the person who's looking for arguments. And they might not intentionally look for arguments, but because of their nature and their unwillingness to fight this fight of faith and battle against this flesh-eating spiritual bacteria, they've given in to this negativity. I really appreciate, and I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about this person. He says, the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. So this idealistic person, person always comes and says, I know what's best for our community. So they want everyone to follow his pattern. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own laws, judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of the brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community as if his dream binds men's men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. Bonhoeffer is so spot on. This quarrelsome person, this person of strife, they go in saying, let me fix this. With negativity, cynicism, complaint, criticism, they have all the answers to the problems, to how to get this place to be better. But when things don't happen in the way he deems it to be, then first he becomes an accuser of others saying, you're not doing it right. You're not listening to me. Then when people don't necessarily respond to that so well, it's God I thought you brought me to this community so that I can be a blessing and here no one's listening to me. And then we say, God, you made a mistake. 
And then finally, it's they live alone. They're despairing. How many people have left churches, go to big churches, are now in the back seats, coming on Sundays, no longer saying, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to minister. I just want to, I want to hear the word and I want to leave. And their lives are so alone. And you'll see as they get older and older, that heart, the heart of strife, no one fits their standard anymore. They're all alone. When we get to this place, when no one meets our standards, when everything is wrong, everything else is done with faultiness. It's everyone else's problem. The church has messed up. The leaders have messed up. Other church members have messed up. It's ne- they can't see their own heart. And the tragedy of strife and quarrelsome cynicism is that it always wreaks havoc on the church. It drags others down. We just tend to think negatively about a person because we don't want to give the benefit of the doubt. There's always assumption. The assumption is this person, I know they're speaking about me. I know they're hurting me. I know they've done this. It is important to be optimistic, to remember that God has placed us into a community to be a blessing, to be a means of God's grace, not of the work of the devil by accusing. Remember, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, the brothers and sisters. He's an accuser. If we are going around accusing people, we are doing Satan's work. We are Satan's children. That's a strong word, but that's who he is. And once we follow his pattern, we are not a means of grace. We're a strifeful person. And our, it's not just that the church is at stake, our souls are at stake. This flesh-eating spiritual bacteria that is coming from within, we're not battling it. We have to fight that battle over and over again. And we have to say, no, we refuse to yield and we're gonna be gracious, we're gonna be kind. And that grace means when people hurt you. You don't need grace when things are going well. You need grace when conflict happens, when someone lets you down, when there's discouragement, when there's disappointment, when someone is reviled you, cursed you, failed you, disappointed you. Just like our Savior, just like our Lord, we always remember, oh yeah, he did that for me first. He did that for me. Because he's done it for me, I will do it for others. Next is jealousy and envy. These are two synonyms in this list that are pretty close to one another. The words themselves, it's interesting. They, they, you don't get this in English, but in Greek, it actually has the concept of intensity to it. Intense feelings. So when you look around and you see how well others are doing, what they have that you don't have, maybe it's material goods and possessions. Maybe it's friendships. Maybe it's the applause of other people. When you look at that and something suddenly stirs within you, it's an intensity to it. And you, again, social media just, just emphasizes this over and over again, vacations and luxuries and friendships. It creates this intense passion that you don't have what someone else has. And so the expression of that flows out in many different ways. Maybe it's, I need to boast more about what I have. Or... It happens internally. 
I fantasize, I dream, I imagine. And then eventually we will always act on that. The person who buys what he cannot afford to and racks up debt just so that he can look a certain way, drive a certain type of car so that he fits in with all the other cars that are in the parking lot. And it doesn't matter how much debt he has, he just needs to look a certain way. This person will not be living for Christ because envy and jealousy filling their soul keeps them from ever knowing the contentment that we have and the security we have just simply as being a child of God. And that's all we need to be content. Fits of anger is next. Paul here refers to this anger that just sort of bursts out, it vomits out. There's no control. Remember, this is the battle of the flesh. And we Christians, we have bursts of anger sometimes. But we know it's a sin. And we know that such a person, my heart, I have to wrestle with it. I have to deal with it, no matter what happens. Usually, when there's a fit of anger, it's ultimately idiocy. It's foolish. It looks foolish. In the moment, you think you're completely right. But if there was a bystander walking by and seeing how you looked in that moment, they would think this is a foolish person. This past weekend, Italy beat England for the Euro Cup in soccer. I know that most of you don't care, but I cared, actually. It was held in London at Wembley Stadium. And because of the sheer anger of losing, some of the English fans started making racist remarks against the black players because three, they, were, they went into penalty, penalty kicks and the three players who missed their penalty kicks were black. And so on social media, there was all this racist remarks uh, from English fans who were upset that these three players who were black missed their penalty kicks. It wasn't just that though, that was terrible, but also uh, there was this video of um, once the game ended, a bunch of English fans stood outside the gate and as Italian fans started coming out, they started hitting all the Italian fans. I mean, they were like beating them. The, the, many of the fans were on the floor and they're like kicking them. And this is over a soccer game. Just think about that for a moment. You watch that and you think, this is ludicrous. It's really vile. But that's what fits of anger looks like. To the person who has a fit of anger, it seems so justified. Well, if you knew what they did, you would understand why I'm so angry. But to the person who's watching that, they would say, what's wrong with you? You're an idiot. That, that's maniacal. Things we think are so critical and important, we have to take a step back and say, is it that important that my daughter struck out in softball and made the final out to lose the playoff series? You might think, but that's so important. It's just the playoffs. But then to those of us who are outside, we're saying, that's not worth getting angry over. That seems pretty ludicrous and idiotic, actually. Or if your child comes home with a one, they got all A's, one B, and you're just losing your mind. I invested all this time and energy. I hired a tutor and 
How dare you do this? You're, are you my son? You're not even my... And we're all thinking, what is wrong with you? There's something seriously wrong with you. Some of you heard about what happened to Richard Sherman this week. You know, he got uh, arrested for trying to break down his father-in-law's home. And we read that and you think, what's wrong with you? Well, we're not that much different. If your child comes home and gets into a car accident, brand new car, your car, what's your first instinct? Is it, are you okay? It'll be okay. Or is it, that was the new car. You're never going to drive again as long as you live. Okay, I faced that recently. <laughs> being treated rudely by a clerk, you know, being called out by an umpire who has, you're saying, they can't even see. They have bad eyes. What's wrong with you? You walk into your house and the house is all disorderly. It's so internal within us. And you say, why is that there? Because of the depravity of our sin. Do we fight it? Do we battle? Or is it spiritual necrotizing fasciitis? It's just coming away and eating at our soul. We are perhaps not that different from the soccer hooligans if we're not battling this flesh. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Let me just give you a quick overview of these next three. I'm just going to classify them together. They, uh, they are distinctively different, but we'll just work on this together. Rivalries refers to the political person, meaning they play two sides. They're always going with, they're, you know, checking which side the wind, the political winds are, and then they go with that. There's no principle at all. Whichever side is popular, they go with. And it's, I'm not talking just about national politics or running for office or anything like that. It's running for office within your family, perhaps. Trying to discern, oh, I want this sibling over this sibling. Favoritism. You know, a parent maybe who favors their child. Within a church, there are factions and saying, oh, who's the popular group? Or in school, trying to figure out, oh, I want to hang out with that group over there because they're really, if I just get into there, everything at school will be so smooth and I, I can just really be popular. That person is a rivalrous person. They're a fleshly person. And all they seem to care about is which party do they belong to. They're self-centered. They're not loving. They're always taking sides. And in this way, it creates dissension, division. We are facing this more than ever before. We, we see this in politics. We see this in ethics. We see this during COVID. We see this with every single time there is some shift, even within COVID. There's an automatic instinct to say, we need to pick a side, we need to choose. But once we do this, we elevate the issue over Christ. We forget the fact that we actually worship one God, one Savior, one Lord. We should be a place where we can be a church where we can wear masks and wear not wear masks. We should be a church where we can actually have different views. One person voted for Trump and one person voted for Biden. If we can't actually be that church, then we're not the church. 
we should be a place where we can have two different political parties without necessarily looking and with disdain at the other person thinking, how could you? And both sides, and I'm not just talking politics, it could be just relationally, family, um, even ethical issues, even really important ethical issues such as homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion. If we can't be in a place where we're wrestling together with what we believe, why we believe, but still show mercy and grace and still remember we worship one savior, then we are very much the person of the flesh. I was talking to a friend of mine who's pastoring a church in North Carolina this week. And he was just sharing with me how his church has split three times. The first time, it split over Black Lives Matter. One group believing one side, the other. And then the second time it split over COVID. And then the third time it split over women in ministry. Now their church is like 20 people. And when I was listening to him talk, just thought, how tragic. What I didn't hear was Christ. He is above all. He really is. Paul dealt with huge factions in his church. In his church, as we see in Galatians, there is the Jew. Totally believes, he, he's grown up with this tradition of the law. He believes with all his heart. He was taught it. As, it's part of his heritage, his identity, his, everything that he learned from the youngest of ages, even as an eight-day-old eight child being circumcised to living and keeping the Sabbath and all the festivals. And then also living in a time period where Jews are being oppressed by Romans, the, the majority government of the day. And so there's this desire, so there's a lot of politics, there's a lot of opposition. And then you have a Gentile, someone who is cosmopolitan, has no idea what a Jew is like, and they are thinking, what is the big deal about the Sabbath? Or I don't understand, what's, what's the big deal about circumcision? Why? And they're in the church, and they're having you know, a potluck dinner, and you have the Jews sitting at one table and the Gentiles sitting at the other and they're all looking at each other and they just pass each other by. They hear the same gospel message. They hear the same call to love Christ and to follow him, but they cannot sit together. They can't be together because they're so polar opposites in their traditions, in their politics, in their vision of life, in their worldviews. And Paul's point is, you're all missing it. You forgot about the gospel. You're, you're preaching a different gospel. When a different gospel is preached, in other words, when it's not Christ is utmost, abortion's important, your stance on homosexuality, whether you believe a Christian should smoke marijuana or not, whether you should wear a mask or not, whether you, sh you like really loud electric guitar or you want pipe organs, or you believe just in psalm singing. Whether you believe you should wear a suit on Sunday or whether you, it's totally fine to wear shorts and a t-shirt. There are so many ways we could decide this is important. These are really important things, but they're not ultimate. Ultimate is Christ. Everything else is secondary. Lose sight and 
mix up the priority in any way, and you have rivalries, dissension, and division. And you have no church. And you have a church that doesn't follow Christ. The gospel is what is central. Until we have that unifying reality, we will not last. This place that we've spent so much time to open will be closed pretty soon. And it should close if we are not united on the only person who matters, Jesus Christ and him alone. Lastly is drunkenness and orgies and the like. These last deal with alcohol. And it's not about, orgies does not refer to anything sexual. It refers to, the word is more about reveling and partying, you might say, clubbing, <laughs> to use our, our current day and age. And I remember I was in my years as a college pastor, there were two things I regularly spoke about in sermons, dating and partying. And it was one-sided and very legalistic. Uh, I wish I could go back to my college pastor self and say, you know, it's about Jesus, right? Not about going clubbing and partying. But I don't want to, um, I don't have to speak about reveling and partying so much. Why? Because as uh, someone told me, and Sue told me this, when you're young, you want to sneak out of your bed to go to a party. When you're old, you want to sneak out of a party to go home to bed, <laughs> you know? And therefore, I, because many of you are old, I don't have to speak about partying as much. <laughs> you, all want, you don't want to party, you want to go to bed. <laughs> all right, I know a lot of you are young, so you're not thinking that way, but you old people, you know what I'm talking about. You want to sneak out of parties. <laughs> Does God have something against parties? <laughs> like, what, what's wrong with having a, a good beer on a hot day and or, you know, coming home and having like a martini or whatever and just winding down or what's wrong with having a party or going clubbing? Does God really hate clubbing and partying and all that? I think the answer to that is absolutely not. He loves partying. He really does. He's, he is the, the, the greatest partier of all. I mean, there's a reason why Jesus in Luke chapter 15, uh, verse 7, he describes the that all of heaven rejoices, parties essentially, when one person turns to him. Why Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven as a wedding banqueting feast. Why wine so often is described in scripture as this expression of God's bountiful blessing. But the word drunkenness shows us what Paul and Jesus is referring to. Drunkenness is the idea that you as just like idolatry, like everything, when you can't control yourself. When you have surrendered your heart and your mind to something other than Christ. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 5, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. When we yield our mind to alcohol, to drugs, to partying, to sex, to revelries, when we yield that and don't, trust in the Lord utmost, then we actually have lost sight of who God is. We've lost ourselves. We've actually lost the ultimate of what God wants, which is he wants our pleasure, us to have pleasure. He wants us to have joy, but we're surrendering utmost joy for secondary tertiary joys. And the Lord is telling us, I want more for you than that. 
don't, don't just give in so easily to pleasures that do not satisfy. They're always, as Jeremiah talks about, as broken cisterns. They hold no water. There's a, there's a hole in the, in the well, and as you pour water in, the water just keeps on dripping out, and you're placing your hope into something that doesn't last. But what the Lord promises is eternity. At your right hand are pleasures evermore, as we saw last week in Psalms 16. So if you're in the place of saying, I'm not drunk, I'm just buzzed. Wow, you've really missed it. If you have to even make that type of logical argument, then you're drunk. You've lost, you've lost it. And if someone who cares for you says, hey, you gotta stop drinking, you know, because every day you need it. I need this. So you have your little stash of, I don't know, whatever, a cognac or something underneath your, your little brandy underneath your bed. And I've, I've lived in that type of house and where, you know, it's there and you go, I need that. If I don't, ex- if I don't have that, I can't unwind. Then you've given in. You've stopped battling. So sin abounds in this list. Maybe you looked at this list and you said, this is really hard. It abounds. But at the core of this list is God wants more for you. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to overflow in your heart for him. And he will fill you up. He will bless you. He'll give you pleasures forevermore. Sometimes the flesh, sinful nature, the devil, the world, it just seems hopeless. How can we fight it? But I'd love for you to remember Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He bore your sins on a cross. His flesh was torn so that he could overcome our flesh. The fact that we have struggles with our bodies and our hearts and our minds. It's not as though Jesus is surprised by that. He died so that he could overcome your flesh. One day, your flesh will be made anew. It will be a resurrected body. It will be fully engaged to trust him and to love him and to enjoy him forever and ever. And there will be a day there is no more tears, no more fight forever. It's been done away with. We respond to this then through the word, through communion. Jesus's body was broken for our broken bodies that are regularly every day failing. You know, the answer to this is not, okay, I have to be perfect and live morally perfect. It's, I can't do it, Lord. But that's why your body was broken. That's why you shed your blood. And every time I fail, I need to turn to you. I wanna run to you. And when you do, he will be there for you. He will be by your side. Let's pray together and prepare our hearts for communion. Father, I just want to acknowledge for myself and I think for every one of us here and those who are watching that we can't will ourselves enough to overcome sin. Can't battle enough to win the day. Every time we succeed one day, we fail the next. 
and how hard it is when we face that from friends and from our own children, our spouse, when they fail us, even though they promise they're going to do better next time. But how much more you hear that from us. We promise over and over again that we're going to fight harder. We're going to battle harder. But then we fail you again. But that is exactly why you gave your life, Lord Jesus. Because we can't do it by our flesh. Our flesh is weak. Thank you for the brokenness of, and the fact that your flesh was torn so that you would be able to help us when we can't do it by our own strength and will. So as we come to this table, O oh Lord, help us, O oh Lord, to see that apart from you, there is no hope. And we trust that you are Lord. You will give us the means by which we have hope. And may we run to you, believing that there's no other place to turn except to you. In Jesus' name we pray.